0: hello you're very welcome to amplify archaeology podcast and we're back after a little break if you're new to the show i'm neil jackman the host i'm an archaeologist and i have a company called abata heritage we tend to specialize in public archaeology engaging people with the past essentially i started Ar- amplify archaeology a little while back a couple of years ago now uh, mainly because i'm nosy and I like to have conversations and chats with people to find out about their incredible work. So Amplify Archaeology is centered around a series of interviews with different types of experts and archeologists. We might talk about particular periods or places or projects that are going on, or different techniques as well and how we know what we know. But today is a very wide ranging fascinating discussion. It's right up my street. We're talking about pilgrimage island life we're talking about folklore cures curses and the repatriation of human remains there's an awful lot going into this and tommy and ryan give a, a, a really fascinating account of the work it, there'll be as usual show notes uh, on the website as well on aboutheritage.ie that's where you can find links to some of the things that we talk about and images of inish boffin and amplify archaeology is sponsored by tour that's our membership site and that's it for people who really want to dig into the story of ireland so we've got lots of articles itineraries courses on irish archaeology genealogy things like that we have virtual tours we have actual tours with real experts and a talk every month there's loads going on in there you can find out more at tour.ie but for now i hope you enjoy today's program. Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology podcast and I'm delighted today to be joined by Tommy Burke from Inish Boffin Walken and Dr Ryan Lash, a former postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Experimental Archaeology and Material Culture at UCD and we're going to be talking a little bit about... Well, it's kind of... We touch on quite a few subjects with this because it's a really interesting paper that they've just produced, which is looking at the heritage of Inishbotham and and particularly practice of pilgrimage, traditions. You know, there's an awful lot to talk about. And it's a couple of my favourite places on Earth as well. So we might begin there, actually, Tommy, with yourself. Could you set the scene a little bit? For people who don't know, who haven't had the pleasure... Um, could you tell us where Inishbofin and Inisharka, are, and what's life like there today?
1: Uh, Inishbofin, it's about halfway up the west coast of Ireland. It's on the border between Counties Galway and Mayo, and it's off northwest Connemara, uh, not too far from Clifton Town is where it is. It's an island of about, I don't know, just over 2,000 acres. In a shark, it's just to the west of it, it's about a half a mile and uh, similar. It's got good, it's about 600 acres. Uh, it's the, both of good agricultural land, but has a very good harbour. It's over a mile long. So its position on the border of Mayo and Galway would have been on the boundaries of the O'Flaherty and the O'Malley territories in olden times. It has a very good harbour and it has some very good agricultural land, whereas some of the island is quite rocky. There is a stripe of extremely good agricultural land. So that set the scene of, of its importance in, in the past.
0: Yeah, I, it's incredibly beautiful place as well. So, like, I, I remember I've only been there on a day trip, actually. It's somewhere I'd love to go back to. Um, it. It's quite, uh, would fishing always have been a big part of life there as well as kind of the all kind of agriculture?
1: Fishing was a huge part of life here. It was the industry that sustained here. There was never enough of agriculture to to sustain the population. The mm. population was just before the uh, 1841 census. I think it was about 1,450 here and 200 on, on in a shark or something around those numbers. And um, and there was no land to sustain that sort of a population. So what they totally depended on was fishing, particularly herring and mackerel fishing. Okay. And huge shoals used to descend here. The only problem was they didn't have the boats sort or of the technology to chase these huge shoals of fish around the ocean. So if they didn't come, you didn't fish. So okay. uh, uh, so whereas when times were good, they were good, and when times weren't good, people were on the point of of starvation sometimes. Ironically, the Great Famine of the 1840s didn't seem to have any major effect here. Uh, But every report that was done here, uh, such as a report on fisheries, a report on construction work on a pier, every engineer seems to put in a footnote hoping that somebody in a position of power would read it to say that the island was in dire straits and in uh, in, in need of employment and in need of and in need of whatever that they were desperately poor but, yeah. but oddly enough as poor as it was it, the famine didn't have the devastating effect here that it did on other communities that seems to be the case with islands in general along the coast there's no real history of they were on the point of starvation but they they survived so fishing must have you know, they, they too depended on potato, the same as every other community in rural Ireland at the time. But yeah. they were supplemented with, with fishing and with foraging and whatever, and that was enough to keep them going for those couple of years when the potatoes failed. Yeah. But there's a, a report and afterwards uh, that I, I read, they talked about communities that had survived the famine years, but in the early 1850s uh, suffered badly from fevers and diseases. And one of the places they mentioned was in Isbafn. Oh. So. So it, it, into the early 1850s, the, the diseases that had ravaged the country during the famine seemed to hit places like this.
0: Yeah. And do we know what kind of diseases they were? Out of interest, were they things like typhoid or were they cholera or does I, it say?
1: I I think both of those that you mentioned, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay. God, had times.
1: always a, a great worry here. Um, there was a cholera outbreak here in 1834. There's actually a plaque... To the memory of a father McFadden, who died, as it says, tending his flock, and it's it's in the cemetery, and uh, it talks about that. And I think it was bodies they believe who came ashore or a shipwreck, um, and people were involved in burying the dead, or whatever. And there was a terrible cholera outbreak, and we, there's a whole section of the cemetery that was never reused again afterwards. So we don't know what numbers, but there, there were several several hundred, I think, who died of cholera, which meant for the next couple of decades people really did not want ships landing here. They were terrified. Yeah. Often, yeah. was even a couple of times that people complained that they didn't render aid to ships in distress because they really were worried that this would happen again.
0: God, okay. that That's fairly big, all right. And looking at the population of uh, Inishboffin today, uh, roughly, do we know how many there would be at the moment on the island?
1: There's something between 170 or 180. Okay. That's the most it gets to in the winter time. Mm. you could definitely double that in the summer people come in here to work Yeah, so you yeah. so probably would double that in the summer Okay,
0: okay Could you give us a little bit of a background of the connection of the island with kind of early Christianity and monastic sites
2: Sure it, It's appropriate in some ways that Tommy fleshed out the 19th century history to begin because in a way we kind of receive the early medieval history through 19th century people's engagements and uh, folklore and storytelling about that history because in some ways the sites along the coast here aren't that well served by early medieval sources mm-hmm. and in this case Inishbofin and Inishark are very distinct because Inishbofin we know we have one of the best narrated foundation stories for an early medieval monastic site in Ireland for St. Coleman's Abbey on Inishbofin. We know from the Irish Annals, from Anglo-Saxon historian Bede's narration of the event that St. Colman came here sometime in the 660s after the Synod of Whitby, which was a church council in the north of England that was trying to resolve the Easter controversy. You, some of the listeners will be aware that in the seventh century uh, in Ireland and in England, there was a lot of debate about the proper way of calculating the date of Easter. And you kind of had multiple traditions. One had been introduced by Roman missionaries, whereas the other had been introduced by followers of St. Columba into the north of England. And St. Colman, who was abbot of Lindisfarne, was part of that tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, but long story short, the, the church council kind of decided against Colman. And Bede explains that he left afterwards, resigned his position at Lindisfarne and went to the west of Ireland with 30 English and 30 Irish followers to found a new monastery on a place called Inishboffin, whose name he actually includes. And he says, whose name means in the language of the Irish, he would have called them the Scotty, but in the language of the Irish means Island of the White Cow. And that's, that's the cool. first that Inishboffin and its, its place name is mentioned in a, in a historic text. So we know quite clearly when St. Colman's Monastery began sometime in the 660s, probably 668, somewhere around there. Tommy talked about disease. We also know from the annals that there had been a plague in Ireland soon before that, and that another saint from this area, St. Faheen, had died actually from that plague. And so it's possible that Coleman was coming into a landscape that kind of potentially had been cleared out um, and there was space maybe for a new kind of institution to, to find its way in. Very interesting. Very interesting. With, with shark in contrast, the only thing we know about shark and its monastic history really comes from folklore that was remembered on that island and on Inish Uh We mentioned Baffin today is inhabited, but Inish was evacuated in 1960, mm. and there's been no permanent settlements since then. And so what you have on Shark uh, is a kind of enhanced version of what you have on Boffin. You have this amazing landscape where space is restricted, but materials and memories have accumulated over time. So you're walking across the landscape where you can see, you know, the remnants of late Bronze Age field systems and hut circles. And you can see Early medieval monastic sites, pilgrimage stations, you can see a 17th century fort, you can see 19th century cottages. All these different fragments of the landscape are kind of present as you you walk around. And so that was a huge part of the lived experience for islanders, was living among all these, these remnants of the past. And we know from folklore that in the 19th century, islanders on the Nishar visited a series of monuments associated with someone they called St. Leo. And the earliest reference we have to anyone called St. Leo and in a shark is from the 17th century. There's no early medieval references. There's nothing in the annals. There's no saints lives. There's nothing. So it's very different from the situation on Mishpahfin. But we knew that in the 19th century, that islanders venerated a series of monuments on the island with St. Leo, and did a, a tourist, a, a pilgrimage day, where they visited these monuments. And that's kind of where our archaeological research began, was from this local knowledge that these places were revered and associated with this early medieval past, despite there being no historic record at all attached to them. That, that's
0: very interesting, right? And moving on to the the whole concept of tourists or, or pilgrimage, I mean, for me... It always brings to mind Kill. That's one of my favorite places. I'm a bit of a a Comkill fanboy, to be honest. He's quite an interesting character. Uh, But typically that's where we have a series of stations and they might be things like cross slabs. They might be dry stone altars. They might be holy wells. um, And the pilgrim would follow a route of these around the landscape, performing certain actions at each point. Um, and in Glencom kill's case it takes up a good portion of the the valley it, it, it's quite spread out was that the case too on inish boffin and inish shark or is it kind of uh more localized as, as you as you both said space is at a premium on, on both islands in a sense so was it kind of contained to a particular zone of each of the islands was it different on on the
2: two islands or, or was it
0: similar
2: from what we know from what survives archaeologically and in the folklore accounts it was it was very different in some ways um in a shark we know that there was at one stage in 1893 14 stations that the Islanders visited and if if you look online you can go to the uh, OSI map the Ordnance Survey map online from 1830 mm-hmm. and you can actually see there's little X's drawn. And some of them are actually named, like Klokhan Leo, Leo's hut, uh, Tober Leo, Leo's well. In other cases, it just says monuments. But we know from landscape survey that these little Xs actually represent where these tourist stations were. And what's interesting is that in the 19th century, people basically had developed the village around these monuments. Uh, You can imagine... Most people have a vision in their head of an early medieval monastic site, right? You, you kind of understand there's a concentric settlement layout where you might have a church at the center and a series of enclosures. And sometimes part of those boundaries aren't actually boundaries, but they're like chains of monuments. On mm-hmm. in shark, you kind of had an interesting version of that where it seems as though there probably was an early medieval church somewhere at the base of a hill that's now kind of the center of the 19th century village. But then you have scattered around that kind of like satellite monuments or a series of different stations. In some cases, like you said, these might've been uh, cross slabs or l- 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 stone platforms. Uh, there was a holy well, but on Ninnishirk, what's interesting is that one of these stations was actually a, uh, some kind of pilgrimage hermitage complex called Klahan Leo. So you had a beehive hut that was surrounded by its own kind of curvilinear stone enclosure set up along the coast, and that seems to have been the major point of veneration. That was kind of the pinnacle, we think, at least of the 19th century uh, pilgrimage tradition, and also in the early medieval period, because that's where the archaeology has really demonstrated a good bit of the chronology of this site
0: yeah that that's very interesting it sounds a little bit um it reminds me a little as, as you say i i haven't been to a actually so it, it, it's not a site that i'm that familiar with uh it sounds with the the village being in the middle of all of these monuments it reminds me a little bit of tory island mm. off the coast of Donegal, that you have Essentially, right next to somebody's house, you'd have a little feature yeah. and things like that. It, it's kind of all clustered together, the living and the past. Uh, it, it's
2: That's exactly it. We might, yeah. we might talk about that later as we go through the history of mm-hmm. this tradition that the, the relationship between houses and garden plots and these monuments begins to shift over time. And you can see a difference between the early 19th century mm-hmm. where people seem to be respecting the location of these monuments and they're kind of untouched and some things start to shift as time goes on, and the church gets more involved in local ritual practice. Yeah, so interesting.
0: And I suppose looking at the kind of the work that you've been doing, uh, you know, one of the aspects you, you've a focus on. And you mentioned it there is the holy well and um, these other features that people have a kind of devotional practice with. Could we talk a little bit about? The, suppose, the relationship of holy wells to these sites do mm. we know much about
2: that or, or is there much to say it's a little easier maybe for Inish Boffin because the two holy wells well two of the holy wells known for Inish Boffin are in close vicinity to St. Coleman's monastery the, the remnants of St. Coleman's monastery I don't know Tommy if you want to talk about the yeah, there, was, um,
1: there was three wells at Coleman's there was a well that was just a functioning well this spring there was Coleman's well which seems to have been totally lost to history and nobody had been able to locate it for centuries and there was also St. Flannan's well and St. Flannan's well wasn't a, a true well it was like just a I don't know a cistern that you would put water in oh. and there's one thing that if, if people were worried about a boat lost at sea, you would pour water in and you would observe the water and it would give you an indication if the boat was safe or whatever. And there's one story associated with it where one family, there's a child that's really seriously sick and the father goes to this well and he prays there and he prays and asks St Flannan to intervene and save his Child who recovers, and he built um, a circular wall around it, which is about six foot high. Some foot it has fallen since, and uh, it didn't have a roof. And somebody, an ancestor of my own, used to whitewash it. And so, Saint, Fla- oddly enough, Saint Flannan's well, which wasn't really a well, was was still the well that became mm-hmm. the holy well of the cemetery. Water was taken there from a kind of secular well, and Saint Coleman's well. And few people have mentioned it in writings that nobody could really locate Coleman's holywell. Mm. But I know that for after the people left in the shark, right up to the 1980s, nobody ever really went there except the people originally uh, farming sheep and cattle, but later just sheep. But if you went back there and you someone knew you were in shark, the one question you get asked is, Did you go to St. Leo's well? So it was it was almost like it, it it captured the imagination mm-hmm. and there was this very obvious fame as well but i know from speaking to a few people um unfortunately they were gone by the time i developed a greater interest in archaeology but as a young person speaking to them and it was like that the local population above them they knew something used to have on on shark they were they weren't quite sure what it was and nobody you know said exactly about pilgrimage but the the people here, the older people, knew that Shark had a history of something religious happening on Shark, but what it was exactly nobody seemed to know. But the one thing they did know about was there was all these features associated with Saint Leo, but particularly the well. That is the one question you would ask was, Did you go to Saint Leo's well? So the whole yes. no, notion
2: of a holy well had, had in, it captured the imagination of yeah. the people in Buffon. And the, the Leo's holy well is kind of a different setting because. It's, it's, it's in a cove. It's in this very kind of cliff-faced yeah. cove that's right next to Leò to the early medieval Hermitage site. Okay. And so as part of the tourists in the 19th century, what you could do is, especially if you needed a cure for someone, is you would do the tourists, you would go to hol- to the Holy Well, and then you would go and you would sleep in Leò overnight or hold vigil in prayer. And if you did that right, then you might get the cure you you were asking for. There, there's even a folklore account that women in the 19th century who had children living abroad in America would go to St. Leo's Well to collect some water, and then they would send the water in little cartons or bottles to their kids abroad to look, look after them. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting setting because it's re- you really just have to walk down this very kind of sheer cove. Uh, to even get to this little natural spring well. And there seems to have been a spring well and a little basin next to it, which was actually the, the Holy Well. That's interesting.
0: And it's interesting that how it, Holy Wells are still this thing that capture our imagination today. And, you know, and and there's many of them have particular cures ascribed to them, you know, often to do with things like um, eye ailments or maybe skin complaints or or things like that. Did did the wells on St. Leo's well or Inishwaffen have like a specific cure or was it something more kind of general that it was seen to be, you know?
2: Tommy might know more about this for Boffin, but there's there's a, a different station on Shark called Laba Leo, Leo's bed. And on mm. top of it there's a bulan. Mm-hmm. Which have actually been a prehistoric uh, grinding stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, there's a cavity within that stone that would collect water, and you might bring water from the well, or rainwater might just collect get collected in there. But a few of the islanders that we talked to over the years swore by it as a cure for warts, that the water collected in that basin would just melt your warts away.
0: But I, I suppose it's something as well that people have a, a, a sense of wells, of having even... Uh, beyond christianity almost a kind of a a pagan kind of a practice thing you often hear that they started out as a pagan place and then some saint comes along and rededicates it to christianity and 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 so on is there any truth in that as far as we know do we know much about pre-christian activity at these wells is is this kind of people connecting something natural with something spiritual which is do we know anything about Whether it? matter where you
1: go in the world, really, we take it for granted in the modern world. But if you meet someone in, you know, Tanzania and the Maasai mm-hmm. or somewhere like that, the wells are like a life giving thing. There's probably nothing that exists on the planet that is more important than something that provides water.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so every culture in the world will appreciate a well as a, as a life giving source. Mm
2: -hmm. and there's kind of two elements of this story that fascinate me like there is of course mentions in hagiography of of, in early medieval hagiography of saints blessing a well that had formerly Mm -hmm. been focus of pagan worship or whatever so if some of those stories are based on reality that seems perfectly reasonable to me to imagine that that sites water sources that were important to pre-christian people may have been taken over the, the other element of it is you have a lot of writing in the 18th, 19th century of people looking at these tourist traditions of Irish Catholics and rural Irish Catholics. And Many of these observers might have been Protestant observers or even Catholic clergy who were really suspicious about the veneration that went on around natural features or elements of the environment, Holy Wells being the big one. And so there was this kind of stereotype that really gained traction then that mm-hmm. this was idolatry and that it, it it was represented an under undercurrent of paganism in Irish Catholic devotion. Now you ask some people that today, and they might be very enthusiastic about that idea, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for various reasons. But in that period in the 18th, 19th century, this was the you know, this was a source of some derision. But, but I'd echo what, what Tommy said there, like, I, I think sometimes archaeologists and historians are maybe too dismissive of the, uh, of the idea that, may, maybe not the idea that there's pagan origins, mm-hmm. but that engagement with the environment, with natural forces was yeah. important in the early medieval period. You, you don't have to be a pagan to be in awe of the power of the sea or the curative yeah. power of water. Or the movement of the sun across the sky, and that's these elements come up in all of these tourist traditions. Like there's often this reference to the direction that you do the circuit in, and how you how you do circuits around individual stations, and it's usually glossed as you you go in the direction of the sun. You go deshel, right hand wise, and this is usually understood as. Mimicking the mo- the apparent movement of the sun across the sky in the northern hemisphere. Because if you stand with your right hand, Deschel, facing south, and you follow the sun with your hand, you go in a clockwise motion, right? That doesn't mean that there's some pagan undercurrent of sun worshippers, right? It was quite easy throughout the history of Christianity to identify the order of the universe with God's creation of the universe, and his Mm -hmm. rendering of the cosmos. And so we shouldn't be surprised that some of these practices, whether they make you walk in coordination with the movement of the sun, or make you interact with holy water, or make you interact with the power of the sea, that doesn't have to have some kind of pagan undercurrent. All of those phenomena would have been as equally awe-inspiring, I think, to early medieval Christianity. One of the things that, one of the most frequent finds we have from our excavation of these pilgrimage stations on Inishark are white quartz pebbles. So we excavated Cohen Leo over a number of years 2011, 2012, and 2017. And one of the most immediate finds we have was that you remove the sod. And you realize that almost the entire area within this circular enclosure was paved with flagstones. That was the first thing we saw. But on top of those flagstones were literally thousands of white quartz beach pebbles everywhere. Another site we excavated, Klohankanlio, another kind of early medieval site that seems to have fallen out of use, but still had a a beehive hut, an enclosure and a pavement, had almost 7,000. White quartz beach pebbles, and again, there's two directions you can go with this. Well, one direction is, oh, this is a this is a pagan thing, right? Think about New Grange and the quartz pebbles that are uh, outside the entrance to New Grange, or think about all the folk associations between quartz and the fairy realm, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the early medieval writing that associates white with spiritual purity and cleanliness and monastic livelihoods and things like that. Mm-hmm but we're also f- forgetting kind of the obvious thing that these white quartz pebbles are pebbles they're beach pebbles they had to be gotten from the shore and brought to this place and again it's an element of early christian devotion that maybe we haven't thought about as much be- be- because we're worried about falling into that trap of saying oh it's just it's just paganism yeah. but i think you know th- this is a world where people are literally going out to boats bringing down the sails and bringing in the oars and letting God take them wherever. Yeah. So, I mean, the power of these stones to manifest because they themselves have been carved by the turning of the tides, the movement of the sea. These little stones kind of evoke that world of of divine governance of the natural world. And that could be as compelling to early Christians as it would have been to neo-pagans today or what we imagine Iron Age people were doing.
0: Yeah, I think that's all very true. And and there's also the thing as well of when you go, when you take this sort of a journey, and it's a journey of the mind as well as of the body, you want to leave a mark. You want to somehow show that you were there in a a sense in that small practice of picking up a a quartz pebble and bringing it with you as you're making the thing. You've added, along with all the thousands of other people, you've added that. Piece that's not the exclusive to the christian world no absolutely not, not where yeah.
1: people bring stones and leave them on cairns yes
0: yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah no that's it and, and it's something that i think is human in a sense you know i, really, I, yeah. I, I don't think it comes from um, a particular belief system apart from you want to Somehow add to something and yeah. to the uh, all the people that's gone before. It's it's an interesting subject for sure. Um, we talked a little bit there about the holy wells as as places for cures and, and for you know uh, interceding in a good way. But one of the things that struck me in your paper was the the cases where they've been used for the opposite, where they've been used uh, for sort of darker practices. Mm-hmm. Could could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Well, there's certain stories or elements in the folklore that suggest they could have been used in such a way, but often the story is recorded because it's almost like a cautionary tale about how it shouldn't be used.
1: Lady Francesca Wilde, Oscar Wilde's mother, spent some time on Innishar collecting folklore. She's written some beautiful stories. She was a fabulous writer, mm. like her, her command of the English language was for and it just pluck it out of the sky, but um, but there is a tale of a, almost a counter mm-hmm. pilgrimage around the well and doing stuff backwards and bringing dark forces. But it is very much a cautionary tale of this is what not to do, and if you do this, there's consequences. You know, consequences, to be paid. exactly. But
2: as it's interesting because you have wild story and then you have. You have a kind of reflection of it in folklore from the 1940s so wild story is that there was a woman on the island who was called a wicked name and she wanted to curse this man so she went to the well and she did the, the station backwards so she walked not in the direction of the sun but the opposite way counterclockwise on her knees and she cast the stone in the name of the devil instead of for the name of christ or saint leo and churned up the water and the man she was cursing drowned at sea and later on, the woman is kind of triumphantly looking at the shore, and the waves throw the man's corpse before her, and she's delighted in her triumph. But then another wave comes up and catches her and pulls her down to the depths, and that was the, her own kind of vengeance recoiling against her. Um, so as written, it's really a cautionary tale about misusing this sacred resource to pursue feud. But what's interesting is in, in, in 1942, there was a fellow called Brian McLaughlin who was collecting folklore on Shark and Boffin and other places nearby. But he he recorded a story that resonates with Lady Wilde's account, which you, know, you might suspect might be a bit, she might've injected some kind of gothic horror into it or something. But, but McLaughlin's account's a little simpler and it's that a woman was headed to the well because she wanted to curse someone who she knew was going to be at sea. And the idea was that if you churned up the well, it would churn up the sea. But on her way there, she met a friend. And she asked him whether his son was going to Clegan that day, would, that is, would be going to the main port on the mainland, whether he'd be on the sea. And he said yes. And she suddenly reconsidered what she was about to do, because she realized that by trying to curse one man, there might be collateral damage. And mm. so she felt better of it. So again, there's this element that the, these, these places can be used to work cures. They're the stage setting for the, like these ideally communal rituals where people come together and do the station on St. Leo's day. But there's also an element there that they're potentially dangerous Um but the stories, again, are always cautionary tales about the misuse of these two. Almost like the shooting. cursing stones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And that people
1: will often ask about cursing stones. There's a stone left on the Bullon at La Leo in Shark. And um, it's like a small glacial erratic. It's a bit bigger than an Easter egg and about that kind of shape. Mm. And um, it was probably put there later. I don't think it originally yeah, was it's, there. It's but it looks a bit like it. And, you know, you twist it a certain way or whatever. But a lot of those, it wasn't that you could do this. It was more about asking for justice. So those stones mm-hmm. was more about you had been cursed and you were trying exactly. to invoke a greater power to, to give you justice. Mm-hmm.
2: So. There's a stone from Cahar Island that's still there on the altar, Loch Neneve, the Stone of the Saints. And the folklore around that one, it was actually, it was used if your name had been blackened, right? If someone had accused you of something you hadn't done, you would go to Cahar Island you would do the pilgrimage and you would turn the stone. And if your cause was righteous, if your name had been unjustly maligned, that the weather would suddenly shift, there'd be some transformation, very conspicuous in the action of the sea or the weather, et cetera, that would show that you were in the right.
1: There's a bizarre tradition here that happens up to relatively modern times where if you wanted to curse a boat if you wanted to curse somebody, particularly a boat, whatever wrong you felt the owner or the crew had done you, you would put a pot of stones boiling on the fire, mm. uh, similar to boiling a pot of potatoes. Mm. And, but you would have to get some a random person to take them and bring them outside. And there are... There are um, my mother told me of a few incidents of it happened here. It was usually used as a tale to call out people for being crazy to be to be at this and to expose someone that has been uh, lunatics that they engaged in this kind to of carry on. But but one of the ways you could cause this was you would take stones, I don't know what, what were the a specific type of stone or just stones, and you would buy them in a pot. And then you would often a woman would say, Oh, I, I'm not strong enough to lift this, and you'd ask a passerby, and there's a few, I won't go into the full details <laughs> yeah. of it, but there there's a few incidents that I was told of, and you would you would get them to carry the pot out like a big pot of spuds that you might carry outside and strain the water out of, and you would do it. But you couldn't do it yourself with somebody else. And I think harm might come to that other person. That's why you would sacrifice a passerby. But but this this was a, a practice that went on. No, I'm sure very few people did it, but that went on up to relatively modern times, yeah.
0: God, I've never heard of that tradition. That's fantastic. I, I love this stuff. I really do. It's so interesting. And I, I, I suppose... Moving towards uh, kind of the whole idea of pilgrimage and who might be a pilgrim and so on. And I think when you think of certain periods in the medieval period and so on, a pilgrim, you might be thinking of somebody who's like a cleric, a, a religious person, a monk, or, or somebody quite well-to-do who's making a big voyage to, you know, Santiago uh, or, or whether they're going to, um, you know, Rome or places like that. How how did the practice of pilgrimage kind of change in in relation to Ireland? Do we see a difference in who's kind of taking part in these pilgrimages? Is there uh,
2: certain people allowed to do it, or or is this kind of? It's an interesting question for the early medieval period because we we tend to always think about early monastic sites as being these domains of kind of like men with funny haircuts that are praying <laughs> all the time. Do you know? Um. But it seems to me there must have been some kind of popular element to early medieval pilgrimage liturgies because the archaeological evidence suggests periodic re-engagement with some of these sites. Like Inishmuri is, is like the gold standard example where you have this you have this tourist landscape, you have a series of lakta, they all seem to have been built around 1000 AD, and then you have these later folk traditions surrounding them. And so it seems to me that it must have been just local lay people who were the the vector of memory that that were translating these practices, changing them, of course, but bringing them forward and adapting them to new circumstances. So my take on it anyway is that in the early medieval period, you have these monastic islands, right? And you might have a permanent community of monks. But those monks might be supported by clients, tenants who are kind of tied to these institutions that might owe them uh, direct labor or food rent or something like this. But in return for that, every once in a while, maybe not every day, but on feast days, they might get access to these special places, might be granted entry to the enclosure around Leo to do their pilgrimage, to go down and bring their quartz pebble and ask for whatever they want, or uh, maybe even use one of the Oaths wearing stones or cursing stones to adjudicate a dispute. Um, but it seems to me that there probably was some popular element to early medieval pilgrimage. And it was those people in subsequent centuries of the descendants of those people when these monasteries started to fall away and to begin abandoned or be suppressed. It was memory of local people in the landscape, maybe whose ancestors who had periodically done these traditions, who then kind of revived them you know, and adapted them to the new circumstances across time. Um, For Shark, it's possible that there was some kind of ecclesiastical institution still active there all the way up into maybe the 17th century. But it's really in the mid-18th century where it seems like the the modern village starts to grow up, right? Because you have the potato introduced into Ireland, you can settle these islands in ways that you couldn't before. Mm -hmm. And it seems from that time onwards where it's a period of Catholic suppression, There's, you can't really get access to a priest, that these old monastic ruins become your kind of primary medium for engaging with the divine, with sacred power. Um, but it's suddenly in the hands of lay people, right? And, that, and that's what that's what both keeps memories of these places alive, but also kind of made it transforms how, how the monuments are actually used and the different kinds of, social and devotional roles that they that they might be playing and obviously that caused a lot of controversy like i said before with some protestant observers but even catholic clergy were often very skeptical skeptical and suspicious about these traditions in part because it it had the whiff of idolatry to them but also frankly because it kind of questioned their monopoly as intermediaries of d- divine power, right? What role do we play if you can go down to the Holy well and ensure, yeah. a, ensure a blessing or a cure, et cetera, et cetera. So the church was always kind of keen either to appropriate or regulate these traditions.
0: That, that's very interesting. Cause I was, I was actually just with uh, Blender Lock the on saturday and uh, christian corlett was saying something similar around uh, a practice at the lower lake and Mm. it seems that a lot of these the catholic church kind of in in the 19th century you know post uh, emancipation and so on it was almost this kind of stamping down or frowning upon this more uh, loose or ungoverned Kind of practice, and and the excuse that's often given, and you see it in Admore, for example, with Saint Declan's pilgrimage, and that is that they suppress these uh, these pattern days because of all the drinking and the fighting. Do you think it was more about the control rather than that kind of thing, or, or what, what might a pattern day look? I
1: think possibly both. Yeah, there is no doubt about it that. On pattern dates, there was faction fighting and clans meeting up, and there was drink. But uh, And there was there was even records, I think, of local police stations and then guard stations, so tell you how late it went on, uh, looking for reinforcements on the day. So this went on. Uh, but because these mass gatherings, and there was alcohol and whatever, descended into fights, doesn't mean that that was the whole purpose of people only went there to fight. Yeah. Yeah. I remember regatta days, uh, which was as close to a pattern day as we had out here when they raced boats. And I remember so on. And there'd always be a few fights. Sometimes they'd be about what happened during the race and other times it'd be just about other stuff that got carried and dealt with on that day. But it didn't mean that the only reason people gathered in their hundreds and thousands, maybe in some cases, to watch the races because they wanted to fight. Yeah. So so I'd say control had every bit as much to do with it. And the, yeah. and the church didn't want that. So something I was going to say there was I think a significant thing happened when when, the, when Catholic Emancipation happened I think in 1829 they built sometime in the early 1830s we think a church on Boffin so you, you had the ruins of, at St. Coleman's, and we know because when McLaughlin Brian McLaughlin and Clegan we talked about was collecting for the folklore commission in 1942 he said there was a legendary man Peter Scoville, who had told him that when he was a child, his grandmother had told him that when she was a child, that they were still going to mass in the in Cawmend and the ruin. So, and this had, I think, had a huge, you know, uh, influence on shark. So you would have ruined Buffon where people would gather to say mass. We know from writings at the time, and we only identified it, Ryan and I a couple of years ago, a little valley called um, no Rosary of Rosary the 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 bog of the Rosary and also in Clunamore, which is a, the kind of the most isolated part of the island it's a, a mountainous part of the townland and that there was two mass rocks there so we know that there was that form of worship at the time but on Sharp they they had the rooms of, of what medieval church probably a 12th century medieval church yeah. yeah. and they had their own traditions and they clan Leo and had the stations so they they were doing their own thing. But all of a sudden, emancipation happened, and they built a church on Boffin. So no contemporary Catholic worship. There was you, you could come to Boffin and do it. So yeah. you know. So then, some years later, um, Henry William Wilberforce bought Boffin and he owned it for about twenty years. And he was the son of William Wilberforce, the famous abolitionist. And there's a lovely record from one of his family uh, in a diary about. How how what happened at mass when they were there and they were talking about the people from Minishar coming over and spending the whole day and the kids running around playing and not going into the church and the priest chasing them and wanting to go in and behave themselves and all these things. So as soon as the church was built and the second year I think that Wilberforce was here uh, it was a curate from Hill parish that was the priest in charge of Boffin. We didn't have a permanent priest but from that period on, we did have a permanent priest. So not Boffin as a church. It was a small, basic church. It was described as a shed almost. Yeah. But it was a roofed place of worship with a priest. And all of a sudden, contemporary Catholic worship had come to Boffin. And as a result, the, the shark people, when they could, when the weather permitted, would come across in their boats and their courage from shark to Boffin to go to mass. So it was almost, they now were leaving and going on a pilgrimage to the neighbouring yeah. island to engage in the new form of Christian worship. The, the same
2: thing that happened on Shark. Was in the 1880s, the ruined church there that had been previously used as a cattle barn actually gets renovated into a church. And subsequently, when the weather was suitable, maybe once a month, the priest would come over, and the families would organize, bringing him over, and he would serve mass. Um, but because that was only periodic. Uh, they still held on to certain elements of the tourists. So like visiting St. Leo's well and visiting Cohen Leo was still, still happening. And what, uh, we talked about drinking and other kind of social activities that surrounds the pilgrimage. One of the fascinating things we found in Cohen Leo in the Beehive hut itself is in the uppermost layers. The most recent layers is loads of historic transfer print, spongeware, uh, glass from different kinds of bottles, Bovril bottle shirts. And it really seems like, at least in the later part of the 19th century, the social activities surrounding this pilgrimage may have included kind of picnicking. Like you you see familiar kind of like household food waste translated from a house to like this public ritual setting. So a lot of the 19th century descriptions of, of, of pilgrimage traditions talk about how there's all kinds of festivities and drinking afterwards. And it seems that on, on, uh, on in a shark, people were having maybe picnics after they did the station and just having scones and tea and the kind of things that you'd use in the context of household hospitality. But on this special day, translated to this to this place. But what's really fascinating is that, you know, the group of people that the church in Ireland always tried so hard to regulate women who weren't allowed to serve mass, they weren't allowed to be priests, they weren't allowed to go into church after they have been given birth for a certain amount of time. It's often in the folklore accounts, women who are the most active in keeping these traditions alive. They're the ones that are going to the holy wells and sending bottles of water to their kids abroad. And on in a shark, this suggestion that maybe they're actually doing picnicking activity as part of the St. Leo's Day celebrations, again, it seems like it's it's women's domain. It's that domestic domain of household hospitality that's being like performed in this in this new venue. So it, it's a, there's always this dance in these traditions between the clergy trying to appropriate or maintain control, and local people having their own spin on things. And
0: Do you know from either the kind of folklore records or or from kind of uh, oral traditions in other ways, whether, because there was no priest, did every family, was it kind of everybody did their own thing, or was the one person, say like, you know, on Tory Island, you have the king of Tory, was there a, a person that was almost seen as kind of, almost as good as a priest kind of thing. Do we know if there was particular social leaders in that sort of a way, or was it more informal than that?
1: I know here, but that could have been in later times, that in the absence of a priest, somebody could lead the rosary, because I think the rosary used to be said almost... The rosary became a huge movement. Yeah. People said it in house. I think it was a Jesuit initiative to yeah. make Catholics, you know, I think... It was a sort of a a Catholic answer to the Muslims praying five times a day that that you would engage directly in prayer several times a day with the Angelus and stuff like that. So there was rosary in the church, but there there were people who who would lead the rosary, and they were usually kind of well-respected people in the community, one or two people. What would happen if someone died in the absence of a priest? And it must have happened, because priests would leave the island for whatever reason, family reasons or whatever, and every now and again, it was bad weather. And even today with modern fairies, you could cut off occasionally, you can imagine. Yeah. There must have been somebody, uh, you know, around funerals and anointing the sick. I, I don't have any details of it, but I know in sort of whatever about being able to, in some way, help with sacraments or whatever was needed, as far as leading the rosary is concerned, there was a couple of people in the community who would who would have that job every evening in the absence of a priest.
2: it. There's, of course, the traditions of the, the children's burial grounds on the island, right? So for a lot of its history, the church would refuse to bury unbaptized children or other people who weren't baptized or, or for whatever reason would be refused to be buried in sacred ground. Mm-hmm. And on Boffin, there's a site associated with St. Scotting. Yeah, St. Scogging, yeah. That was, seems to be some kind of early Christian settlement. That was used subsequently for a children's burial ground. There's adult graves as well there.
1: Yeah. And it seemed that anybody who didn't qualify to get into the official graveyard, Mm -hmm. maybe bodies who were washed ashore, which was quite common. Yeah. And maybe stuff, I don't know, like suicide or criminals or whatever, I don't know, people who weren't deemed fit. I don't know, at some stage, I think people who hadn't received the uh, last rites of the church, I don't know, could you, yeah. I really don't know how strict they were about it. But um, but the last thing it was used for really was children's burial grounds and would be known locally as the children's burial ground.
2: Yeah.
1: But there is a record, somebody who, by, I think it was, a, was it a priest by chance, who was in mm. yeah, the graveyard the and he was really there to, to survey the church or so look at the church or something
2: and the funeral came, and it was an unbaptized child. Yeah, it's it's mentioned in uh, Charles Brown's um, description of the work he did here, which is collecting folklore, mostly measuring people's heads. We might talk about that later. But anyway, he mentions an account that someone else had told him, that he w- he was in the cemetery on Baffin in St. Coleman's, trying to look at in an inscription, and suddenly there was a, these women arrived to bury a child or an infant. I think it says specifically, and they, there's no mention of a priest. And he 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 records a fragment of a kind of a dirge they were singing. Um, keen, yeah. keen. But it it suggests even then that there was some wiggle room, right? That local people would take control to the extent they could of how these places were were used. It's an element used to get you're, everywhere. You also um. I think mentioned that the whole the whole
1: ceremony was exactly the same as any other burial, except it didn't have a priest. Yeah, that it was pretty much it was the same format, but it lacked a priest. Well,
2: one of the most um, it's from the same account. It's a beautiful description of what, kind of the choreography of a, of a burial on uh, Inishbofin in the 19th century. But it's an amazing description. Because, I mean. It, Like Tommy said, it's familiar from other parts of rural Ireland. But the the kind of final journey of the coffin was they'd bring it into the graveyard. And they would carry it three times around the church in the direction of the sun. So you would do the same kind of rounding ritual that you would do in these pilgrimage traditions. You go three times around the church, bring the coffin to the new grave. And then the account says that the families would scatter and they would go and stand at the graves of their own people. And then the group that was standing furthest away from the new grave would start the keen, would start singing. And then it would move almost like a wave they do in a, you know, at a rugby game. It would move from there towards the new grave, people joining in to sing this keen until it arrives at the new grave. But it's just a, to me a beautiful demonstration of how you you see the overlap between these more ancient kind of pilgrimage choreographies, but also just this amazing demonstration of a kind of new harmony, like a literal harmony that's created to restitch together relations between these people, just as one of them has has been lost. When the coffin arrived in the graveyard, traditionally, the
1: graveyard had been full up centuries earlier probably so every grave had had been reused over and over again and they wouldn't dig the grave until they arrived in the graveyard and as Ryan said different people would scatter they'd light a little fire they'd smoke clay pipes I think the the closest uh, stuff that was kind of left over from the wake was brought there and they would dig the grave it would only take maybe 20 minutes because you were re-digging an old grave and they would remove um how if this happened in every case and how often it happened, I don't have an answer to it. But in some cases, they would remove the skull from the grave. These graves were reused as early as nine years, so the skeleton was pretty still intact at that at that time. But they would remove it and they would put it inside beside the altar in the old church, which is right there in the cemetery. And and that led to another story but the, and and then they, they would have the funeral whatever and but then when the landlord who was Catholic Cyril Allies when his second wife died he was widowed twice he um he asked the locals to dig the grave the day before so when they arrived in the graveyard and that became the new tradition but when I was a child in the 70s and into the eighties we would go everybody in the island would go would to go to the funeral. Uh, when the burial was finished, every family would go to the grave of their people. I remember we would go, my mother, my father, and you'd stand and you'd pray. So that tradition of going to your own people, that continued, right? Almost to this day, actually, if you look at a funeral on the island, and it's the same probably applies in nearly every graveyard. If you go... To a grave, and it's and your people are buried in that same graveyard. People tend, when the funeral is over, to go to the graves of their own people and pray at them before they leave. So, so th- there are traditions that that bits of those traditions continue to this day.
0: And I suppose it, you you touched on it though, Tommy, a, a, a little in terms of the the schools on Inishbofin, and that recently featured quite prominently in the news. Uh, when uh, Trinity College uh, repatriated finally after quite a long campaign and a lot of hard work, um, they repatriated some of the schools. Could you tell us a little bit about that story, and how it's all kind of how it all came to be that Trinity College had the schools in the first place?
1: Well, they were taken in 1890, but at that period, uh, Charles Brown was doing his uh, Brynology, is that the word?
2: Well, it was. It was Haddon and Dixon that time. Haddon was the real ringleader. It was, but yeah. it,
1: but at the, for those years, he had been coming up along the coast um, of Ireland, uh, at Brown. So, and he had been doing a study of people in the along the western seaboard and measuring heads and whatever. So, we were about halfway through that process because of
0: where we are on the coast sorry, so his, sorry uh his contention was that the people on the western islands of ireland hmm. were of a, a slightly different yeah uh was race the right word to use or, or it, the, yeah.
2: he, it would he, have been the word they would have used yeah. near enough yeah. i mean the basic idea was that in ireland in general there might be preserved some remnant of a celtic race Right. Yeah, okay. And and that remnant would have been most clear and better preserved on the west coast because of yeah. supposed lack of interaction with subsequent wave of invaders, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the islanders were the place to find those traces. Exactly. Okay.
1: And so, um, Brown had been doing this study from the mid 1880s up to the mid 1890s, and so this was obviously some popular sort of uh, fad that was happening doing this. And in eighteen ninety separate to Brown, the only reason I mentioned Brown is to set up the context of what was happening at the time. Two young guys called Hatton and Dixon. Hatton, I think, particularly. Alfred Hatton,
2: Alfred who I think went on to yeah. be, have a, quite a he, he a basi- career. He basically founded the Department of Anthropology at Cambridge. I think this the department might still be named after. And
1: he was a home ruler, and he was a supporter of the suffrage movement in Britain and stuff like this. So, So... Uh, he's a complicated character but some of his early antics so he came out here in mid-July wasn't it Mm -hmm. and he was told by a local lad called Edward Allies who was the son of the landlord about these skulls at the cemetery and that there was a pile of them uh, piled up inside the church So he he writes this in his diary, and almost you can almost get the feeling that he was almost laughing about how easy it was to do it. So they went there at night and they stole what turned out to be 13 skulls and two fragments of skulls. Yeah, four four fragments of at least two other skulls. So, um, and he, I don't know what he intended to do with them, but eventually he gifted them to Trinity, and Trinity had them on a shelf within his buff and written. And them, and that was it. I don't think anyone here knew a thing about it. But some years ago, there was a guy called Aaron
2: Walsh, who was was he doing a PhD on on yeah Haddon? yeah he's he has a book coming out about that in his life. I think it has come out. Man.
1: And in 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 the process of his research, he discovered this, and he exposed this story. And um, Marie Coyne, who was a local archivist, and she had the Anishpaubet uh, Heritage Museum, and will again she's building a, a new place in uh, the next year, I think, um, got involved and wanted these skulls brought back to the island and reburied. So this was going on a while, and then Ryan and I got involved with Marie to support her in this. So. Because of the whole, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and ripping down statues in Bristol and all this, the whole world was starting to look at, you know, trying to do something, put right the wrongs of the past and colonial legacies. And Trinity was no different. And of course, Trinity was like the colonial centre of education. So they have a lot to deal with. And I think genuinely they're trying to. So they... Have a Colonial Legacies project, project, which I think is chaired by one of the deans, Owen O'Sullivan. And they had a committee. So, Trinity were approached, but it was the College of Anatomy. And you step in here, Ryan, at any time, who who were in possession of them. Mm -hmm. And originally, their first response to Marie when she wrote them about this was pretty dismissive, to be honest. But I personally, think, this is my personal opinion, that it was almost like the College of Anatomy saw this as like an attack on their ethics. Yeah, okay. And I think later, when there was a better debate and better discussion about this, they slightly softened their
2: yeah.
1: Yeah. their their approach. But their original approach was, no, we got these, this is all ethical, this is, you know... And then they came up with, which I think is a very typical thing that institutions use. If a if a living community is trying to, you know, claim ownership of of human remains, human artifacts, they will try to disassociate the, the modern day community from the community these artifacts came from and say that's not really granny. That's people that lived a thousand years ago. They have nothing to do with you at all. Your people weren't even here. So I think this is this is the kind of standard thing that institutions use. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was their move there. But for me, Trinity were reluctant. And the letter was pretty dismissive and condescending, to be quite honest, and it would make anyone angry. But later I, I was involved and I went to Trinity uh, with Marie and um, and we collected the skulls and there was a ceremony.
2: I have to say Trinity, you know, became good. Especially in the, the people on the Colonial Legacies Project, I think, really worked in good faith and worked hard and were open to what Islanders. Islanders wanted. It's important not to say like Trinity is not a thing. Trinity is made up of many different institutions, yeah. faculty, etc. Um, and yeah. I think that I mean just to make it clear for for, for the for the audience maybe like the, the the skulls were taken on the premise that like you could somehow reveal racial categories by measuring someone's skull, right? Which is a very common idea in anthropology, even up to the 20th century, really. So it it was taken on a false premise, right? That somehow you could categorize things. And even Brown and Haddon in their subsequent writings after they did all these measuring, they kind of didn't come to any conclusion. It was kind of like, this isn't working, (laughs) right? even, Even their own studies kind of contradicted their initial premises, but that's why they were taken there wasn't much interest at the time for the context for how the skulls got there. Right. And I, I think, I think maybe in the future in similar cases where this, cause I, th- I assume this is going to happen more and more. There's, there's room, I think, to have a more nuanced discussion. If institutions are forthright at the beginning for what's there, what the research potential is, And what could be done in association with repatriation, right? I I think part of the anger here was that the initial reaction was kind of like, the only way you can claim these is if you can prove a genetic connection. But some of them are are too old that you won't be able to prove that. And it would require destructive analysis. So that's the bar and you can't really cross it, right? yeah. But And and that immediately made the discussion one of, like, we either keep them, Trinity's School of Anatomy either keeps them, or they go back into the ground and they go back to the Islanders. But I think in the future, if there was a more open discussion that began with, right, there's a lot of possibilities on the table. And if repatriation and reburial is what you want, then we can work towards that. In the meantime, are there any kinds of analysis you might be interested in? Right? And I... And I think in the future, it would be nice if more of that kind of discussion came out, where yeah. you had you had discussions with people who do ancient DNA, who do osteology, et cetera, and say, like, well, here's what you could do. We're not saying you have to do it, right? But here's what's possible. And we could still do these. We could collect the samples. We could do the analysis and then decide at the end to, to rebury them. Right? Rather than like creating a bar that's impossible to cross and using that as a claim to hold on to these things, but i I, I give credit to everyone who campaigned on Boffin to make things happen and to to the Trinity's colonial legacies project. As far as I'm concerned, they they acted in in good faith. And yeah, I
0: agree with that, yeah, it's it interesting as you, as you said, it's that though, Tommy, there's this big broader context that it's settling through as well with people look at asking questions about these institutions and repatriation and you know there's been a long debate about charles byrne the irish giant who's in the hunter museum and there's a lot of questions about human remains in collection and uh, i think it it was good to see the right thing eventually happen there with the and and what was like that like when they came home so to speak was there a, a ceremony was there a A a sort of formal rebelt reel, or how did that?
1: So, I'll just try and tell you the story of how it happened and probably best explains it. So, eventually, when they decided yes, we're going to give back the skulls, we said we would. And uh, Kieran O'Neill at Trinity suggested that we pick a day to bury them, which was the anniversary of when they were stolen. Was that the 16th of July? Yeah. Mm-hmm. so we're thinking when will we do it and he said that's a good day so that was the day that was picked so a few days before that we went to Dublin uh, Marie Coyne and I and uh, we were brought by Gardner's funeral home in Athenry and Mrs Gardner whose was Coyne was her maiden name was from Buffon so they, the, the 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 undertakers who facilitated this were off Buffon descent okay Gardner was actually not off Buffon descent but she was a Buffiner so we went and we went to the College of Anatomy just off campus and we collected them. And it was all quite, um, what's the word, um, I won't say emotional, but, but quite serious about doing this. And you, and Marie, Marie and I were, were the, two, the two local people who went. So we, we went and we had a coffin made by a local guy, Christopher Day, who made a coffin, a pine box in the traditional sense beautifully done, uh, with sections inside. So we we placed the the skulls in the coffin and then we took them into Trinity, where they were brought into the church and there was a service and there was a choir who were exquisite, really, and even though they were only a fragment of the normal choir, they were so impressive. And uh, the people came and there was cameras there and uh, whatever, and we gave interviews and uh, Marie mainly gave interviews because she, she, she was the one leading this project. And we had sandwiches and tea, and we got in the hearse and headed west. <laughs> and they remained then, I think, for a couple of days in Athenry at the funeral home. And then they came into the island, they landed at the pier, were carried to the church, the same as any other funeral. And uh, the following day, then there was a mass. Originally, we weren't quite sure about what religious ceremony. Um, was suitable in this context but eventually it was a Catholic mass canon, James Renane from Clifton uh, officiated and the coffin was carried to the to the graveyard which was about a mile and it was buried in a traditional style uh, covered, the grave of a beautiful quartz stone that Ryan and I Marie had collected a few week, weeks earlier and this beautiful monument put on top of it so it was a a traditional island funeral but it was a bit um it had beautiful singing yeah. there but at the at the church and at the graveyard and there was lots of cameras and there was lots of people looking for photo opportunities they won't say who they were but you can guess yeah. and um it was it was quite a nice and i remember which i thought was great and uh, Four ladies would ca- carry the coffin for a period as well, because how the coffin is carried from the church to cemeteries is carried by four people who might carry, I don't know, fifty yards, and then they would be replaced by four more, and it's just done. Like some people who watch this, like there's a military precision about it because we mm. used to do it. Yeah. But um, that's that's what happened, really. Uh, we at the end of the day, when when um, when Trinity decided. To get them back, uh, two locals, with others in the hearse, drove to Dublin, got the skulls, put them in a the coffin, had a ceremony at Trinity, brought them back to Buffon and had a funeral. And that's pretty much what happened.
2: There's a nice, there's a nice touch too. The kind of final touches of the, the location of the grave where they were buried. You can actually look through the ruined church and see the niche where they were taken from in 1890. So oh, if you okay you stand at the foot of the grave where they are now and look towards the church you can actually see the little niche by the altar where they were taken from
1: Well, one of the, right. the worries i have it, there's so many communities around who are in a similar situation to, to awesome on, on buffon and i think the iron islands are somewhere in Clare. several places like on this it, i think it was the wall of a corridor there was glass i didn't actually get to go in there Glass just display cabinets where there's loads of skulls Mm
0: -hmm. listed
1: (laughs) one one of the things was hatton and dixon and it was a sort of an arrogance actually hatton he wrote in his diary that he had stolen these skulls and he had done it under the cover of darkness and he had sneaked them off the island in a bag and pretended he had bottled the putching and he had done this so he 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 self-snitched yeah 30 years later so it was very easy to deal with but there are schools that were taken almost under license so the repatriation them is not quite as straightforward
0: that's very interesting and, and can I ask in terms of the monuments conditions uh, obviously being on islands and the ocean makes them very dynamic landscapes yeah. in terms of climate change in particular um are the sites particularly under threat have we lost an awful lot that you can know of from earlier maps or
2: the most under threat site and it's been under threat for years because you even see it in the 19th century the accounts mention that it's eroding is a cemetery on the nishar so it's 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 on a cliff right by the landing place and you can see from comparing maps, and we've surveyed every year. We were there camping. We would survey it again to try to trace the, the rate of erosion, and it's 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 eroding fairly rapidly. It's the rolling. This is the graveyard in the share. On the shark, yeah, yeah.
1: It's eroding underneath it, as well. So when you're looking actually at the surface,
0: it's going, it's going back a bit. It's getting chewed underneath by the.
1: It, underneath is really where the damage is, and yeah, yeah, yeah. some day there'll be a big storm, and some day you go back there and there'll be no more graveyard because there were huge. Like I remember, right beside the pier, there's like a cave going in under that, and I remember a time you crawl in, and now you can walk in, but just leaning down. Wow. Okay. Okay. And but there's other huge caves underneath, and they were they were much smaller. So if you look at the top and you look at the surface at the, the ground level, it's gone back inches. Every year. But if you look underneath it, it, it's meters, square meters of stuff has been. It will will go eventually. What's interesting about that graveyard, I think, is a reference to you found in Mm. text was it said that the only people who got buried there, uh, this is like 150 years ago, were some elderly people who had asked to be buried there and unbaptized children. And for me, that's like a rare. Account of a graveyard that actually filled both functions—that mm. it was actually an official graveyard, but it was also a killing. Uh, yeah, you know, an special unofficial special purpose. Graveyard. Uh, and Sharp is the only one that I know of that that had that dual purpose.
0: Looking at the island today, and looking at the sites that we've been discussing, uh is the the people? Can people go and see these places still? Uh, is there still a tradition? of people coming along and visiting them. Um, And where can we find out more about the work that you've undertaken? Uh, I know there's a paper out.
2: There's a few papers we've published now over the years. There's a paper in Current Anthropology, if you have a big stomach for theoretical writing, but we've also published in Antiquity and Medieval Archaeology, um, hopefully I'll have a book out in the next few years. There's a book, Island Places, Island Lives, that you can get on Boffin and other stores that's really kind of geared towards visitors because it's yeah. kind of illustrated uh, guide to heritage, different monuments that you can visit. Mm-hmm. There's a walking fest every year on Boffin, sometimes twice a year, which is geared towards archaeological walking tours, which Tommy does as part of his living. I'll tell you more about it. Um, so the kind of the the great thing about Boffin is you have all these monuments from different periods that you can walk to within a few hours, yeah. and a real rich assortment of kind of local knowledge and and storytelling that's kind of curated the memories of these monuments over a, a long period of time.
1: In Anysharps, incredible place. It's very difficult to land there. Mm-hmm. That's what the led yeah. people leaving there when they did leave in nineteen sixty. Um at a funeral yesterday of one of the people who lived on the island. Uh There was only 26 the day they left. But the couple of years building up to that time, there was about 40 people lived there. They never had a huge population, but they don't really have a harbour. They have a very bad landing place. I don't you know where you ever in, in the Blaskets. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's similar. The Blaskets is probably even worse, but it's that type of a landing place. Yeah. So it's very limited. And... um But when you go to it, like the first thing you see is the community that you know that that probably existed from the late seventeen hundreds. I know the excavations that that Notre Dame done, which was an excellent project, and Ryan was the leader really of the monastic ecclesiastical history of the island. There was a Bronze Age and possibly an Iron Age history that was sampled, let's say, early on, but. But, and I think rightly so, because it wasn't really excavated or written about later because yeah. you really have to have the resources and do it properly if you want to do it at all. And then there, there was the, but I, the evidence seems to suggest people like, uh, who did great work like uh, Katie Shakur and Megan Conway that mm. um, <laughs> there isn't much artefacts to suggest that there was a permanent population there probably from the late 1700s. Um, I personally have a theory, and I wish I could back it up, that there was a big turnover of population on Baffin, sometime in the mid to late 1700s. And I'd say around the time that a lot of the great families here, the island was probably made up of eight or ten extended families who were like small small clans. Yeah. Uh, at that, There's probably other people who were here longer, but at that period I think there was a big influx of people that ended up being 1400 by 1841. I would imagine that around the same time that you had an influx of new families here, you had an influx of people settling shark that hadn't been permanently settled for a while at that period. Uh, This is my theory Yeah. Um, um, uh, around that time. Once you go to shark, you get to see that right up to when they left in 1960. A machine has never started its engine on shark. So, you go back to the... There's a Bronze Age landscape in it that's immaculate. I think it's to the Bronze Age, what the likes of the Cage of Fields is to the Iron Age or to the Neolithic, rather. Um, and then you have the ecclesiastical thing that Ryan, led and others, but, but Ryan is, is really the leader of all of this, And um, exposed this thing that had been forgotten. And it just proved that, you know, oral history can hang on to it a bit. You can have... It's almost like random references mm. in in text, but, archae- but archaeology can can open this up, and it, it's absolutely amazing to see these green mounds. And all of a sudden, they're excavated and they're cleaned, and you're looking at this this wonderful thing. And like, how many
2: thousands quartz mm. stones on, on Leo? It's almost seven thousand. Almost just the ones we removed, like. Yeah. Yeah. and yeah. If, if, if you if you look
1: where it is it's kind of at the corner of the island and it's visible from a lot of directions they knew where they were making these as well they, they didn't they yeah. pick their sights carefully but when those were you know washed and that quite was left out in the weather and uh, in the rain and it, they must it must be like
2: glowing just a shifted. shining white platform yeah. on a little hillock there that everyone you'd have to pass it when you pull into the to the landing place and the thing I started to do lately
1: just this year, I bring some photographs of sites just to see You're look at a green mound and all of a sudden you show what a stipend's opened up. Yeah. So yeah. you never know what you're walking up.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I'm going to have to go through the show. <laughs> it you want to come back
2: and I have to give credit too to uh, the director of the project, Ian Kite yeah, and, and, and Meredith Chesson it. who've kept the project going for years. And a lot of what they publish is focused on the, kind of 19th century settlement. I think Meredith hopefully now have a book coming out uh, soon enough on dressers and the culture related to the curation of different kinds of ceramic vessels, et cetera. And Ian's published stuff on the, a lot of the maritime culture here, the mourning traditions surrounding funerals, et cetera. So it's a big team effort. And it's I think the project, of it's demonstrated anything, is what kind of results you can get when you combine archaeology with oral history with folklore with archival data if you can triangulate between all of these pieces of information you can create a much richer narrative than you would with any one line of evidence and that's more than anything what kind of staggers me about shark and boffin is the, the extent to which it was just local people interacting with these sites every day when they're doing farming when they're walking through the landscape between houses when they decided to go to these monuments to do St. Leo's pilgrimage day, it was those activities that were keeping this knowledge alive that didn't find its way into history books or hagiography or annals or anything like this. And it's only by engaging with that knowledge and, you know, adding archeology span into that mix that you can get a sense of how rich these, these stories were. And to, and to push back against kind of these simpler ideas about islands being kind of timeless places, right? Haddon and Dixon and Brown came out here because they wanted to find the last vestige of like a pristine Irish race. And still even the stereotypes about these pilgrimage traditions really being, you know, they're really just pagan traditions, et cetera, et cetera. All, all of those stories are kind of s- simplified, yeah. right? It, yeah if the excavations and everything we've done here prove anything is the creativity of local people, finding new resonances for these old traditions, right? Taking up a pilgrimage landscape that was probably designed by a monastery, right? For its own specific purposes, its own ideological interests, its own economic reasons, and then adapting it to their own local community in the absence of priests, right? And using these monuments to, engage with the sacred to negotiate local social relationships with one another. And now today you see like the heritage tourism industry, right? These, these places, these monuments are being shared with outsiders as a way to bring people into the Island to kind of share, you know, aspects of the the Island's rich history, but there's nothing that's, there's no stasis. It might be continuity, but it's not stasis, right? It's a very kind of dynamic way of commemorating the past and, finding new uses for it. So that's
0: it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. I just want to thank Ryan and Tommy for all of their time and insights there. I could have talked a lot longer, believe it or not. It's such a fascinating discussion. There's so such a rich kind of weave of history, folklore, archaeology, all combined in the... And the islands themselves are just honestly, truly beautiful. So if you do get the chance to go and take a visit there and take a tour with Tommy, I think, you know, you'll, you'll be a changed person for it. It really is incredibly beautiful with a real depth of story to it as well. As ever, we'll be putting notes and we'll put some links on our website uh, uh, in the show notes on abataheritage.ie. If this is your first episode of Amplify Archaeology, hello and thanks a million for sticking with us. I really hope you subscribe because we've got some great episodes coming up uh, in the very near future. And check out the back catalogue too. There's a lot to get really stuck into there. Amplify Archaeology is sponsored by Tua. That's our membership site, as I said at the beginning, and that's where you'll find articles on places to visit. You'll find itineraries that will give you a great day out, online courses. There's a new talk every month with the different experts on aspects of Irish archaeology and heritage. If you like this kind of a discussion, I think you'll get an awful lot out of tour. So check us out there or sign up to our mailing list. And again, there'll be a link for that in the show notes. Uh, we have our Monument Monday series, for example, featuring a new heritage site to visit every Well, not a new site, you know what I mean. They're always old. But for now, thanks a billion for joining me again for this episode of Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Take care and goodbye.